Hi everyone, I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. On this episode of the AAF Exchange, we'll discuss the latest on infrastructure, the debate over the budget framework, and the economy with AAF's Douglas Holtzakem. Doug, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. It's been a while. Uh, How was your August recess? It has been a while. I mean, you look great, but I've lost more hair and feel old. I mean, this is not good. <laughs> That's surprising because I did not have a great August on the golf course, so i surprised I didn't lose a lot of hair. <laughs> yeah, the stress lines are showing. Hang in there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's uh, jump right into things. Since we last spoke back in July, uh, the Senate passed the $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure package. Congress passed a budget framework for a $3.5 trillion reconciliation package. And we learned more about the state of the almost post-pandemic economy. So let's start with the infrastructure package today, which is now in the House's court. Um, To refresh everyone's memory, would you just walk us through some of those key spending provisions of the package? Uh, This is the so-called hard infrastructure package. So this is roads, bridges, ports, uh, and and the modern version of hard infrastructure, uh, broadband. Top line is advertised at $1.2 trillion. It's actually about $4.5 to $500 billion in new uh, spending. And we have a nice piece out uh, actually today by Gordon Gray uh, that summarizes this. I encourage you to go to the American National Forum website and take a look at it. It's uh, no new taxes, no user fees. And so the other side of the ledger is some offsets, most of which are more aspirational than real. About half of the package is deficit financed at this point. Gotcha. And let's talk about that piece you just brought up, Gordon's piece, which we, of course, will provide a link below wherever you listen to it. So so the pay for is in this. Gordon released a piece just today that explains why this bill will actually cost more than advertised. Uh, could you discuss that? Uh, it has to do with the tradition of how we do highway spending in the federal budget, which is uh, unlike any other program. Uh, so suppose we, uh, to make pick round numbers, we uh, have in the bill of $200 billion of additional highway spending. That's called contract authority, the ability to enter into up to $200 billion worth of contracts. But we don't count that toward the deficit. We don't count it as actual spending until Congress comes around and in the annual appropriations uses that ability to spend $200 billion more to actually appropriate $200 billion more. So there's, there's additional contract authority in the bill that doesn't count toward the deficit until the Congress takes another action. But they will take it, and we really should count it. And that's what he, he walks through that in the, in the piece. What about the economic impact of this? There's been some debate about uh, the economic impact of uh, the infrastructure package. Um, will it be as advertised? Uh, what are the big questions here? Uh, the CDO, uh, the Congressional Budget Office, has a really nice short paper on this topic where they point out that at one end of the spectrum, you could have a big hard infrastructure package and, quote, pay for it by cutting non-investment spending in the federal budget. If you do that, you get some permanent impacts in private sector productivity and thus uh, size of the economy, standard of living, things like that. They're not dramatic. The rate of return on this is something like 7%, maybe 10 at the outset. But, but that's something that would be a, a noticeable benefit. Uh, at the other end of the spectrum, you could borrow all the money, which case you'll get a, a near-term blip as you spend the money, but then it'll get offset by the fact that you're crowding out private investment over the long term. So uh, this package is somewhere in the middle. You should expect it to be a little bit beneficial, but but nothing dramatic. 
Mm -hmm. We've talked about this before. There's also the issue of when will these projects actually be finished? When will they actually get people working on these on these job sites and things like that? Start slowly. It's 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 infrastructure. So this is not a 2021 issue. It's probably not a 2022 issue. In 2023, at best, you'll start to see the money go out. It'll go out over the subsequent five years. For that reason, it's real impact is over the quote long term. It's not a, a near term stimulus. And it's also not a threat to exacerbate the inflation problems we've had. Uh, so it's it's safe from that perspective. Gotcha. What's the current game plan in Congress, uh, the plan for getting this past the House? Uh, this is a very hard question to answer, to be honest. Uh, at the moment, there are four very important things floating around uh, in front of the Congress. Number one is the need to either raise or suspend the debt limits. Uh, uh, Secretary Yellen uh, yesterday said that their extraordinary measures can last into October, but no further. So that clock is ticking. Uh, messing with the, the safety and soundness of U.S. Treasuries is something that no one should contemplate. So that, that's an important issue. Then there's fund the government. Uh, it's going to end in September 30th. Uh, and included in that would be emergency funds for uh, Ida and other uh, disasters. Third thing is this Senate passed infrastructure bill. Uh, it's halfway home. You know, House has to do something. And number four is the so-called reconciliation bill, the, the remainder of the Build Back Better plan that wasn't in the American Rescue Plan. And, and that, that, that's the most complicated. That's the one they have the authority to do, but they haven't got the language for what it's going to be. And they're fighting every day for what will and will not be in it. So how does this get done? Well, the two things that are tied together are the infrastructure bill where Pelosi has promised uh, progressives she's not going to hold a vote on that infrastructure bill until they've got a reconciliation bill. And she's promised the moderates she's going to hold a vote on the, the infrastructure bill by September 27th. So who knows how this ends? I mean, <laughs> this movie is going to be very interesting. Yeah. Since football season is around the corner, starts tonight, of course, I'm going to ask you about the odds here. What are the chances we will see this bill signed in its current form by the president? And when might that happen? Uh, infrastructure bill, I say probability 75 percent and uh, probability uh, September, October, uh, 75 percent. I think I think that's got the highest chance of getting over the finish line. It is, at least in my reading of the tea leaves, the bill the president cares the most about. It's the one he worked the phones on with the Senate. It's the one that he's most invested in. And uh, for that reason, I give it a higher chance of success. All right. So I'll be calling Vegas to put my uh, money down on on passing. At your own risk, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's turn to the reconciliation bill that were spurred out of the uh, the Democrats' budget plan. Would you remind everyone of the greatest hits in this package? It's been a while since we talked about it here. Uh, people probably tuned out over August. So first on spending, and then on pay force. Yeah, on uh, on spending, this is the expansion of the social safety net that was uh, the heart of the Build Back Better plan. So. Uh, the, the centerpiece is the so-called child tax credit reform, which is uh, monthly checked to 90 percent of Americans, uh, American parents. Uh, and, and there's no restrictions on that money once you get it. And it's not mean tested in any particularly meaningful way. So it's a big expansion. Costs a lot if it's made permanent. So probably you get a couple of years of that and then a need to extend it at some point. You have a paid family leave program. Again, um, a big expansion. Uh, there's subsidies for child care in there. There's uh, $400 billion for home and community-based care uh, in Medicare, which uh, all of those are designed to be a package which makes it easier for women in particular to participate in the labor force. We'll see if that happens. So 
you know, that, that that's the centerpiece of the social safety net. There, there are lots of other things that people want to get in there and, and you know, will it be the, the universal pre-K, will it be the, the community colleges? Yes, probably some of that. But there are so many contenders for riding on that bill. It's hard to figure out exactly what will be in and out. And then the pay-fors are all the tax increases that the, the president featured on the campaign line, raising the top rates uh, back to 39.6, raising the corporate rate, promised 28, looking like it's going to 25, raised the tax on uh, capital gains, both in the income tax when they're realized and also at death, uh, raised the estate tax, um, you know, uh, increased taxes on U.S. corporations' uh, income outside the United States, the international provisions and global minimum tax that Secretary Yellen was negotiating with other countries. You know, that's all the papers in there. Again, uh, we have yet to see anyone actually put a legislative text on the table. Uh, that should happen uh, on Friday of this week, so tomorrow, uh, as we record this. Uh, and that's in the in the hands of uh, Ways and Means Chairman Richie Neal. I would be surprised if all the things I just mentioned are in there. And no one should expect the, the U.S. Senate Finance Committee to take something from the Ways and Means Committee and say, oh, this is perfect. We're not touching it. <laughs> that's never going to happen. So so there's going to be a vote in the House. It's going to go to the Senate. It's going to change. And if it's going to become law, it has to go back to the House and get another vote. That's a tightrope. I mean, they can't lose any senators and they can only lose four uh, Congress uh, members of, of the House of Representatives. So, you know, that, that's a that's a tough slog. And yeah. I'd say the odds of finishing that are lower and it'll take longer. Yeah, we already have seen one senator, uh, Senator uh, Manchin of West Virginia, say he's not going to accept the $3.5 trillion number that we've seen in the news that, that it's being advertised as. So where is this going to end up in your mind? As I mentioned, Senator Manchin and a few others are pushing for a smaller package. Some progressives are pushing for an even larger package um, as well. So will the final number be 3.5? And more important than that is, what, what do you think the actual cost of this thing will be when you remove spending cliffs and such? I have no idea. Um, we, we, I, I think we know what the momentum is. The, the architect of the budget resolution, uh, Senator Bernie Sanders, wanted something in the, in the $6 trillion range, maybe seven. The way that it will go from three and a half down is not to get rid of things. It will be to shorten things. So instead of five years of child tax credits, we'll do three. Instead of five years of paid leave, we'll do two. And that'll produce a lot of cliffs, as you just mentioned. And it'll shrink what the, the apparent top line cost of the bill. But if you got rid of the cliffs and made everything permanent, I think the six and seven trillion numbers are, are perfectly reasonable ones. Wow. And so we're, we're focused on the number because that's what the headlines show. But we haven't really talked about uh, the policies in this bill. What are the big ticket items that will be included in this package? Um, you mentioned some of them. And then what is the impact that they're going to actually have on the economy? So I think there are really two key impacts. Uh, the first is in the near term. What does it look like? And remember, the American Rescue Plan had a year of child tax credits. It had a paid family leave provision. It had a, it essentially had a down payment on everything that's uh, intended to be in this reconciliation bill. That $2 trillion package produced a lot of inflation. Inflation in the first half of this year was at a 10% annual rate. I don't think it's going to continue at 10, but it's not going to go back to two. And if you pass this, you do more of the same. And so the near-term impact is, is um, uh, highly stimulative and, and will uh, continue the inflationary pressures. And that's a, that's a concern, I think, at this juncture. Then there's the long-term issue, which, you know, if you look at it, you get the infrastructure piece. We think that's modest, I think, objectively. 
And then the big bet the administration is making is that if you have the child care subsidies, the paid family leaves, um, you uh, do more on that front, you will get better uh, labor force participation, particularly by women. Now, on, on the merits, it doesn't uniformly go that way, right? The child credit you get whether you work or not. Uh, there are additional health su subsidies in the Affordable Care Act exchanges that you can get regardless of whether you work or not. And so it's not like everything in here is oriented around work. So there's some ambiguity at the outset. And if you look at other countries that have this constellation of benefits, like, like in Western Europe, you find some with higher and some with lower labor force participation by women. And if you look in the U.S. at places that have adopted paid leave, California is the leading example, uh, female labor force participation fell in the aftermath of that. It didn't rise. And so it's by no means a lock that if you do this, you get a beneficial impact on participation and thus a beneficial impact on the, so the supply side of the, the size of the economy. That, that would be a great thing if it happened. It's just far from sure. Mm -hmm. And this might be a tough question to answer, but assuming some version of this package goes over the finish line um, and includes some of those major changes that the president and progressives are seeking, how do you see markets and businesses reacting, uh, at least in the near term, to these to these uh, changes? I think in the near term, they'll they'll fear the inflation hit and the Fed moving quicker. So, you know, does this accelerate the pace at which the Fed tapers its purchases of bonds and mortgage-backed securities? Does it accelerate the, the date of the first increase in interest rates. Uh, financial markets are trying to process that kind of high frequency information all the time. And I think over the long, time, long term, it, it barely moves the needle because this isn't going to be pro-growth. It's going to be negative at best, maybe not profoundly negative, but negative. And, um, you know, markets will be like, okay, had a chance to do something and, and we're still stuck at two for the long-term trend. And, and that's, that's a non-event. Uh, yeah, I know we did that study that showed the negative impact. So we'll make right. sure we include that in the show notes and provide a link to anybody that wants to learn more about that. So the important thing about that study is it, it came in modestly negative. It, it had a much more productive spending side in, in that study than is going to be true in reality. There's just a lot more transfers and a lot less investment in, in this actual set of bills. It's also true that that study got the worst of the taxes, too. I mean, you got the top corporate rate going to 28, which means headquarters are leaving again and all of the things that we went through with that. I don't think that's going to happen in this bill either. So it's it's toned down the good news on the spending and the bad news on the tax side. And it's going to turn out to be a much less of a big deal over the long term. Gotcha. So let's turn to the economy, uh, the state of the economy. We got the unemployment report for August. It received a lot of attention for its underwhelming job numbers. Um, what were the key takeaways from this report in your mind? I think people really overreacted to this report, and, and I read it very differently. What I saw was the leisure and hospitality sector went from 400,000 new jobs in, in July to zero in August. That's a big drop off, and that explains most of the miss between 720,000 and the 235 that, that showed up. Outside of, uh, of that, we saw job growth, and we saw on the Household survey, 500,000 new jobs created. We saw the unemployment rate drop by two-tenths of a percent because there were more jobs, not because people left the labor force. Um, if you look inside the, the payroll survey, average hourly earnings are rising at over 6%, 6.4%. Uh, the combination of hours, hourly earnings, and employees' total payrolls rising at an over 9% annual rate, that's a hot labor market. I mean, that's a lot of demand for labor. 
abilities to satisfy that demand outside of leisure and hospitality. And uh, so this is a story that we've seen before, a, a recovering economy trying to get enough bodies in place to grow more rapidly. And and the big uh, impediment to that is, uh, A, the virus. Right? We, you just can never forget that the top economic policy is controlling the spread of the coronavirus. And the, se- the second is labor force participation, which remains stuck, you know, a point and a half below what it was in February 2020. And, and, and thus millions of workers not out there available to fill the 10 million job openings in the economy. Mm, yeah, obviously, the best thing to do going forward is is fight the virus and get it under control to get employment back. But then on the labor force participation side, what about the expiration of the UI bonus? Um, as you know, we've talked about many times on this podcast, many have pointed um, this being the reason many workers are not coming back to work. What do you make of this argument? And have we seen any data on this yet? I mean, some governors have gotten rid of it. So are we starting to see some of that information come through? Yeah, we, we are. And, um, you know, we qualitatively always thought that this would be an impediment to getting people back to work. And the question was how big. And and uh, Isabel Soto has a very nice piece where she looked at the weekly uh, claims for unemployment insurance, both new claims, initial claims for UI and continuing claims. And she took advantage of the fact that we have uh, states that exited the, the 300 uh, bonus early and states that did not. And the fact that the states that exited didn't all do it at the same time. So you can compare claims for unemployment insurance, both between states with and without the bonus and those states that as they drop the bonus, what happens? What you get out of that is clear evidence that the $300 um, bonus raises claims for UI and getting rid of it drops the initial claims by about 14%, drops the continuing claims by about 5%. Uh, Big is in the eye of the beholder, but, um, you know, Today we saw claims drop by 10%. So this is this is accelerating the the, the pace at which people come off the rolls, and and I think that for the economy is a good news story. What do you expect out of the September uh, jobs report? I think the September jobs report is is uh, going to be driven by virus, right? So uh, will we have seen a peak and then um, a reduction in the, the fear of the virus? Um, certainly the the $300 uh, dollar bonus will be gone. I think we get. Um, Strong uh, result from that. The, the folks at Goldman Sachs think this could drive the number over a million jobs. Uh, I think that's a that's a big number, but would be good news. I'd love to see something like that. I think the biggest question is how is this presented to the to to the American populace? Um, a, a communications mistake, I think, that has been made, you know, by everyone. So this is not pointing fingers at any particular person. Over the course of the pandemic, has been to to portray it as black and white, like it's 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 no good now. But once it's gone, it's going to be great, and we just have to get there. And so that that frames it as it's going to go away, and and it's not going to go away. It's going to uh, it has worsened and will improve. Um, the economy has to operate in the face of the presence of the virus for the foreseeable future. But if you tell people it you know it'll go away, and we're just trying to get to it going away, they have an incentive to wait, not participate. And, and that's that's an impediment to, to having the economy functional. So framing it as, look, we, we need to be thoughtful about how we address the virus. We need to operate the economy in the face of it. People have to have their standards of living. Uh, you know, the social fabric gets rent by lockdowns and isolations. We don't want to do that. Let's let's try to restore normality to the extent possible. Gotcha. Well, one final question for you might be the toughest one of the podcast. Bucks or Cowboys tonight? Oh, Cowboys. No question. Uh, the return of the DAC, right? I mean, 
everyone's picking picking the Bucks, of course. Reigning Super Bowl champions. They have that. I forget his name. Some old guy who plays quarterback. <laughs> Some people think he's pretty good, but no. Gave no. me the best twenty years of my life. <laughs> well, that's uh, just because you haven't worked at AF for twenty years yet. Hang on. <laughs> Well, I, I'm torn tonight, actually, because, you know, on the one hand, I have my boy Tom Brady. But then on the other hand, I have my fantasy team, which has Dak and Zeke Elliott as my quarterback running back tandem. So, I, I mean, I'm, I just want a high scoring game tonight. <laughs> no reason to be torn. Turn the page. Get rid of Brady. Move on. <laughs> it's the Mac Jones era for us Patriots fans. So <laughs> ready to go. Doug, thanks, as always, for joining us. This was a great roundup, and I look forward to our next one. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes, and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.